Heavenly Father, we believe your word to be divinely inspired. We believe it to speak eternal truth to us, your people. And so we want to hear and understand it well this morning. I pray, Father, you would do just that by your Spirit and through a sinner like me that you would make Revelation 9 clear to us. I pray you would do that, Father, that you might give your people a clear understanding of the truly horrible and wretched state of those who do not know Christ. Give us clarity, Father, so that instead of judging them, we will have compassion upon them. Show us the misery of their state, Father, so that we would be bold to open our mouths to proclaim Christ and to pray for them that you might redeem them as you have us. I ask for clarity here, Lord, that leads to great compassion that we as your people, individually and as a church, would have the right eternal impact that we've been called to have here in the South Bay. That we would recognize that our friends and our family and our co-workers who do not know Christ are in great danger. And that we would be people who warn them rightly in love. I pray that you would show us these truths from Revelation 9, Father, that we might understand your justice better that we might see the movement of the gospel better, and that you might sanctify us and make us holy as you are holy, drawing us near to you even this morning. I pray it does not lead to discouragement, but to great hope and great power in your spirit. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Demonic affliction, there's a title of a sermon for you. Uh, Years ago, I had an opportunity to teach through C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And if you don't know that book, um, C.S. Lewis took significant time trying to write on a very practical level what demonic warfare looks like in real time. And he writes about Screwtape, who was a fictional demon, and then his various underlings that he uses to inflict suffering and pain and torment on mankind. Um, It's a most extraordinary book. If you have not read it, I would encourage you to do so. C.S. Lewis was asked to write a sequel to it, and he said, I cannot. I cannot spend that amount of time again dwelling in the darkness of the demonic and not be impacted by it. And that's how I feel this morning. Uh, Revelation 9 is hard. And it's been one of those weeks where you're just overwhelmed. So forgive me for the emotion. Um, I want it to rightly overwhelm you too. Because I believe if it does, if we hear it properly, it will have a great sanctifying power on us. Not only making us more alert in light of the danger that is before us, but certainly more compassionate by those who are ensnared. Suffering death... As you know, it was introduced to us back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They were deceived by Satan. And and we can say that, that misery, physical misery, psychological misery, and certainly death have been part of the human story now for millennia. We know it. We experience it. And on the one hand, I think we can rightly say that all suffering 
all misery and all death is ultimately a result of sin, of us being sinners living in a fallen world. I think that's a a general truth we can take from God's word. But what Revelation 9 reveals to us is something deeper, a, a bigger picture, a better understanding of the misery and death that we see taking place all around us. Last week, we had a chance to listen to the the four trumpets being sounded as God used the natural order to bring judgment, to bring suffering and death upon the earth. But before the the fifth trumpet is sounded, look at verse 13 in chapter 8. John writes this, he said, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. This is what the eagle said, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so the the first four trumpets have been sounded. They were trumpets of judgment. The next three, the eagle says, are woeful trumpets. They are bringing judgment against those who dwell on the earth. Now, if you remember, we've already seen that, that that's a technical term. Earth dwellers is used multiple times in the book of Revelation to identify unbelievers. Okay, so the trumpet five, six, and seven, the woes that are going to come through these two trumpets, they are for unbelievers. That means you, by God's grace, are not subject to these woes. But I pray you then do not say, well, then I don't need to listen. This is God's word. It's here for a purpose to sanctify us and make us holy. But these woes, we'll look at two today and then one next week. These are for those who continue in rebellion. Those who refuse to be saved. So this morning from Revelation 9, you probably heard it read and you thought, what? How are we going to do this in this very brief period of time? Uh, Believe it or not, Revelation 9 is a very, very simple passage. And it talks about how God uses demons to punish and put to death non-believers. That's the whole passage. That's the whole chapter. He uses it. He uses language, poetic language, symbolic language, to heighten the awareness of it so that we are rightly concerned. But that's what the chapter is about. Um, God's past, present, and future judgment through demons on unbelievers. I'd like to consider three truths from this passage and then one response. And so four points for you. The unbeliever's misery, the unbeliever's death, the unbeliever's rebellion, and then lastly, the believer's response. What do we, what do, we do with this? I mean, what do we do with a teaching that I truly believe is, as we look through you know, Revelation up through chapter 19 and 20, there's a lot of judgment here. And so I hope that we're able to respond to it properly in the context of the gospel. Um, the theme of the sermon is this, only Christ can help the demonically afflicted. Only Jesus Christ can help those who are afflicted by demons. So point number one, the unbeliever's misery. Look at verse one. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Verse two, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Now remember, we're, we're dealing with apocalyptic genre. That means we're dealing with symbolism and metaphors and poetic language, okay? Um, and it's intended to heighten our awareness to the magnitude of what is taking place here. 
And so what we see here is something taking place on earth that is dark, that is difficult. Uh, The star at the very beginning in early Jewish literature, it often represented an angel. So angels were often called stars. And here it symbolizes an angel of the Lord who is given a key by God. That's authority. He has power from God to this angel to come down and open up this door to this bottomless pit. Some of your translations say the abyss. Okay. Um, and again, it's not a literal place. There's not a literal door. The angel's not holding a literal key to a literal bottomless pit. It's not even terribly concerned about location. It's trying to identify and heighten our understanding of the demonic. So we're talking about demons. We're talking about the beast, which we'll, we'll see soon. And we're talking about Satan himself and how God's going to use demonic power to judge unbelievers on earth. And it's his authority. God gave the angel the key to exercise its authority through demons on earth. Look at the latter part of verse 2 again. From the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And so the angel who has the key, he has the authority, he opens up the shaft, which means what? He allows demonic power, demonic affliction to come upon the earth. The description matches well if you remember our study in Joel when Joel was prophesying to the locusts coming upon Judah. Do you remember? And he talked about the darkness of that day. This is Joel 2.10. And so this is a recapitulation of that, but in the end times. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Darkness representing the evil that had come upon not just the city of Judah, but the entire world. And so powerful and so voluminous is this picture that the sun is metaphorically blocked out. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So darkness comes, and, and, and remember, we're dealing with imagery and metaphor here, and John describes what he sees as locusts on the earth. Now, we know locusts from the Old Testament. We, when we did, actually, we did Exodus, if you remember the eighth plague, the locusts came upon the land, and they devoured the land. And we also saw locusts in Joel when he was prophesying to the day of the Lord. But here, they're not, they're not real locusts. In the Old Testament, they were. Here, they're demons. He's seeing demons come upon the earth by the power of God to inflict judgment. And so they come as demons to devastate like locusts, and they come to inflict suffering like scorpions. Did you notice that? Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any green tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, you probably think, well, that's odd. If they're locusts, they would go after the grass and the trees. That's what they do, right? Locusts devour the land. The people then, they suffer starvation and many die. But they're not actual locusts. They're actual demons. And they're given power not to harm the grass or the trees, but to harm people. Now, the good news is it's not all people. John reveals that God had given them authority to judge only those who remain in rebellion. Look at the latter part of verse 4. This is really important for you to know as you read Revelation 9. Those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now remember, we talked about that already also. It's not a literal seal. This is the 144,000. This is the great multitude. These are those that God has redeemed by grace through faith in Christ and given the white robes. 
This is the church. These are God's people that these demons have no authority to bring suffering upon. Now that's good news, is it not? No, that, that's great news. The fifth trumpet, the woe that's coming upon the earth to unbelievers cannot impact you. Amen. Amen. Only the unsaved. And they're not going to be put to death. They're going to be required to suffer punishment for a period of time. Look at verse 5. These demons were allowed to torment them. That's the unsaved. For five months, not literally five months, but for a period of time, a duration that was relatively short. But not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So this is very similar if you, if you remember the story of the book of Job. Remember Satan comes into the presence of God in the throne room, and he is able, he's given access to Job in order to inflict suffering, but God says what? Don't kill him, but you can punish him. You can cause him to suffer, test him. Here, very similar, when the fifth trumpet blows, the demons are allowed to come out by the authority of God to come to earth for a period of time and inflict extreme pain. So the scorpion was well known then. We, we, we live in an area, we have scorpions. I have some scorpions near my house in the mountains. Uh, not like these scorpions. These guys had a bang to their buck. When you got stung by a scorpion then, you knew that you were stung. Um, it was rarely fatal. I know we have that image that scorpions kill. Rarely is it fatal. But the pain, evidently, I've never been stung by one, praise God, is, is extreme pain. Um, in fact, I looked up the description at the Mayo Clinic this week to see how bad the pain is. At the sight, excruciating pain. And then numbness and tingling and swelling that can lead to, listen to this, head, neck, and eye movements, uncontrollable. Difficulties breathing, drooling, sweating, nausea, and vomiting, and possibly death. Extreme suffering is what John is trying to communicate to us here. Being stung by one of these demons produces extreme suffering. So extreme that they want to die. Look at verse 6. And in those days when these demons are out, which is today and they're inflicting God's judgment upon the unsaved. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So the physical and the psychological suffering and misery brought upon the unbeliever by these demons is so extreme, they want to die, but they don't die because they're afraid to die. Now, this I do believe this verse is, it magnifies the wretchedness of the state of the unbeliever who is being afflicted by demonic power. They are in grave misery, grave suffering, psychological, physical suffering, and they want to die, but they know if they die, it may be worse. And so they're afraid to die. And the whole mess that they're in, apart from Jesus Christ, is truly inescapable. In other words, they have no power to overcome the power of these demons Look at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 is just a description of how powerful these demons are in inflicting suffering upon those who do not believe. Look at verse 7. Speaking of these demons, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. In other words, they were going to be successful in inflicting suffering. They were going to be guaranteed success in bringing misery to the unbeliever. 
Latter part of verse 7, their faces were like human faces. That means having power. Remember, we are vice regents, having power in this case over the earth to bring suffering to the unsaved. Verse 8, their hair was like a woman's hair. Now, the imagery should be somewhat bothersome to you. Most of the commentators believe it was disheveled hair. So crazy long hair, and it's to add to the ghastly image of these demonic creatures. That they are truly horrific. And their teeth like lion's teeth, that's an obvious one. You don't want lion's teeth coming after you, right? A lion's teeth devours flesh. They have no power over these demons. Verse 9, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, which means they could not be killed. No human being being afflicted by a demon had the power to overcome the demon or put the demon to death. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Now, most of you know the chariot was the most feared weapon at that time in warfare. And so this onslaught of innumerable demons coming upon the unsaved and then verse 10, they have tails and sting like scorpions, so we know what that means, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their hands, verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. You know who that is. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in the Greek it is Apollyon. Apollyon in the Greek means destroyer. That's their king. The king of these demons who have been set out as instruments of judgment by God upon the unsaved, are to bring terror to the earth. Job rightly describes Satan as the king of terrors, for so he is and so are his demons. In other words, my beloved, not only is the state of the unbeliever being afflicted by demons most grievous, that individual is powerless to overcome it. They are subject to these powerful demons. Not difficult to understand. I know when we hear it read and it's apocalyptic, we get, but it's not. It's, it's terrifying. I, do, I would say that, but not difficult to understand. God, through demons, much more powerful than men, brings judgment upon the unsaved through what? Through extreme suffering that they cannot stop and they cannot prevent. So extreme they want to die, but they're afraid to die, so they don't die. Sickness, pain, disease, Anxiety, depression, heartache, stress. Every single form of suffering known to man is at the disposal of these demons upon those who do not believe. Every single one. It is a miserable state. It is a miserable state for those who do not know Christ. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. That's the fifth trumpet. Behold, two woes are still to come. And you think, well, two more. That's what you just described was horrible. And we gotta have two more, yeah, two more, and the sixth is worse than the fifth because the sixth one tells us, the sixth trumpet tells us that demons come to put people to death, not just bring about suffering. Point number two, I pray you're still with me and I pray you're not overwhelmed. Point number two, the unbeliever's death. Verse 13, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now you say, wait a minute, the golden altar before God, we talked about that two weeks ago. That's 
Or last week, that's, that's the altar of incense right outside the holiest of holies, and it's talking. You say, that's so weird that an altar would talk. Yes, it would be weird if it's historical narrative, and certainly weird if it's an epistle, but this is what? This is apocalyptic genre. Altars talk. We're good with that. We're good with that. Verse 14, what does it say? The altar says, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Those four angels very likely are demons. They're very likely fallen angels. You say, well, where are you getting that? It says angels. Well, an angel, a fallen angel is an angel as well. Two, two things from the text that tell us, one, they're bound. Angels that are, are not demonic are not bound. They're bound, and it's where they're bound, at the great river Euphrates. These four angels are bound up. Now, if you, you know your Old Testament, the Euphrates actually crossed the top border of the promised land that was promised to Abraham and fulfilled in Solomon. And so these angels are on the other side, the far side of the river Euphrates. They're enemies of God. But God releases them, and they're released with power again to do what? To bring judgment upon the unsaved. Look at verse 15. So the four demonic angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. This is worse than the fifth trumpet. Again, it's not literally a third. It is a large number of unbelievers that are going to be put to death by these demons. They would exercise judgment, these four, as four demonic generals under their king, Satan, and they would have a cavalry not literally, but metaphorically, of two million strong. Look at verse 16. The number of mounted troops. Now, so these demons metaphorically are on horseback. They have power. Though twice 10,000 times 10,000. You say, oh, my math's really bad, Pastor. That's two million. That's two million demons mounted on horses that John hears about. And so to make this very simple, from the time of our Lord's ascension into heaven until the time he comes again in glory, not only did you have an incalculable number of demons set upon the earth by God with authority to judge unbelievers with misery and suffering, you too now have millions and millions here of demons that have been set upon the earth to put those who do not believe to death, to kill them. That's not metaphoric. This, again, this is a mind-boggling truth. This is happening right now in real time. People you know, people I know, who do not know Christ, who remain in rebellion, who are suffering and some dying as a result of demonic affliction. You say, well now, you know, you've gone off the demonology boat here. This is just crazy dialogue. You know, I'm a, I'm a strong evangelical Southern Baptist. I believe that the Word of God speaks about, but this sounds, it sounds extreme. This is what the Word of God teaches. The impact of these demons upon those who do not believe. Used by God to judge millions. And just as those who suffered under the fifth trumpet and had no power to stop the demonic affliction, so too those in the sixth trumpet have no power to stop them from being put to death by these demons. Look at verse 17. 
He again, he again describes the power now of these demons who have been sent to earth to kill those who do not believe. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. So this imagery is demons on horses, this horde of, of demonic, a demonic cavalry that brings death. They, the demons, wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and the sulfur. And that, that corresponds with what, what is breathed out of these horses' mouths, which we know to be plagues, sickness, pestilence to bring death. The heads of the horses were, again, here we have imagery of lion's head, right? So, so deadly was the lion to man that man cannot fight against the lion. They were guaranteed success. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of there, the horses' mouths, verse 17, verse 18. By these three plagues, so you get an idea, now we know what they are, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now, again, the number three in the book of Revelation is symbolic, not literally three exact plagues and one must have been COVID. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's, it's plagues of every kind coming upon the unsaved. Diseases, viruses, pestilence, certainly COVID would probably be in that category too and, and probably demonic teaching as well that would lead people to death. Verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths, that's the plagues being breathed out, and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. That just is describing the demonic power of, of this, this, this demonic calvary. And by means of them, their tails, they wound. They bring the plagues upon those who refuse to believe. And so the sixth trumpet is God's judgment upon those who refuse Christ and it's a judgment of death, not just suffering and not just misery for a period of time. It is actually taking their lives. Now, the hard part for us is, we say, well, where is it? Where, where do we see this taking place? How, how do we say that's demonic and that's not demonic? Well, we really don't have that, right? You don't have that power. Uh, and it's hard because demons use natural means to exercise suffering and death. The very things that we say, well, this is just part of being sinners in a fallen world. The demons use those to bring misery and death to sinners who refuse to repent and believe. So John reveals here that for 2,000 years now, from the ascension of Christ till he comes again, Satan and his demonic legions per God's, listen, sovereign decree because the power is given by God to them to judge not only have they been inflicting misery upon millions who refuse Christ, but they have been taking the lives of those who refuse to believe. In real time, my beloved. We always talk about people dying and going into the presence of God without Christ and being judged eschatologically. We know that to be true. This is real time death. This is why Jesus called Satan what? A murderer from the beginning. That's what, Jesus, that's what Satan does. With his demons, he puts people to death. And Peter identified him, you probably remember this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, as our enemy who what? Who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to kill. Peter and John were not speaking metaphorically. They were talking about real death in real time to those who refuse to believe. Which means, my beloved, listen, those in your life who do not know Christ, 
who suffer sickness and psychological pain and physical misery and or who have died may in fact been afflicted by demons. And certainly we can say that all who continue to rebel against God and against Christ and against the gospel, every single person is in danger of this type of demonic infliction, these scorpion stings, and or being put to death now and brought into the judgment of God eternal. Again, this revelation is really clear. God has and he continues to judge those who refuse to believe in real time This is not something that's going to happen. This is something that has, is, and will continue to happen until Christ comes. Physical and psychological suffering. Physical and spiritual death used to terrorize and punish justly those who remain in rebellion against their creator I was, I was just thinking through these past few weeks. There are so many, if you pay attention to the news, there are so many things you think, wow, that's so dark. That's so brutal. And Christians, we still do this. We say, how could that happen? How could someone do that? You've got to erase that from your category. Not, my beloved, listen, we have it in our flesh to exercise the greatest evil known to man. We all do. But certainly when you add demonic influence and affliction, then history makes a lot more sense, I think. I mean, just take the last six months in China. For months, in the midst of the COVID crisis there, people were being locked in, not allowed out of their homes, misery, suffering, and many died. And then four weeks ago, China says, we're, we're going to flip the switch, and there are no restrictions And now all these sick people are released and they're now calculating 3.7 million cases per day in China with an expected 1.7 million deaths by the end of the year. And you shake your head, so how's that possible? Well, if demons are involved, then it's it's very real, right? It's easy to see how this could be possible. And most news stories that we read about that seem so extreme or even not so extreme, we can say, well, I have a, I think a better picture. Now, my beloved, you would think that as image bearers of God, and and we could argue the most intelligent creatures made by God, we would eventually make the connection. At some point in time, we'd say, you know what? All the suffering, all the misery, all the death is connected to those, those who do not believe. Therefore, there's judgment involved. God's really judging right now. We should do something about this, like repent and believe and stop engaging in such unrighteous behavior. What does John tell us? That's not the response of sinful man. We do the exact opposite. Not only do we not see and make the connection between God judging through demons, but we continue in our sin. Look at point number three, the unbeliever's rebellion. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, so they survived, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping who? 
demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. So they see the misery, they see the suffering, they see the death of those who do not believe. And instead of it being a wake-up call, saying, you know what? There's a connection here between those who are suffering and those who are dying and God's judgment. I'm going to wake up, repent, and believe and follow Jesus. Instead of that, what do they do? They continue in their idolatry. Did you notice that? Physical material, gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, and of course all the idols in our own hearts, relationships, careers, your education, status, John makes it clear here that none of these are alive. They, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't walk. In other words, they have no power to help, and they certainly have no power to save, and yet mankind still runs after them headlong into perdition. Now, as a Christian, you say, this is, this is hard to understand. I mean, certainly if you make something with your own hands, if you fashion an idol of gold or wood, or you create an idol in your own heart and mind, certainly you know that if you created it and you're not God, that idol cannot be God. That makes perfect sense. Why can't they see this? Look at verse 20. They did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping who? Demons and idols. You say, oh, they can't see it because they're demonically afflicted. They can't see it, not only because their heart does not want to see it, but they're worshiping demons who draw them in. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament on multiple occasions makes the connection between idols and demons. It's not just gold or silver or wood. There's power behind it, but it's not God. It's demonic. In his song, Deuteronomy 32, for example, Moses recounts Israel's idolatry, saying this, Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Paul affirms this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He made it clear that pagan worship was demonically driven. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. What pagans sacrifice to idols, they offer to demons, not to God. In other words, the same role that demons had in bringing suffering and death under trumpet 5 and trumpet 6, we also see in continuing people to worship idols. They're behind the idols. There is power behind the idol, but it's demonic in nature. And that's why what seems so foolish to you is not foolish to them because they're, in, they're afflicted by demonic power as well. And the demons, they're, they're good, are they not, at drawing and attracting and making evil looks, look good and beautiful, look attractive, that you want that? But John sees something else here those who were not put to death, they failed to make the connection between their evil deeds and God's judgment. Right now, we know that the law of God is written upon every human heart. Look at verse 21. Nor did they, those who survived the sixth trumpet, nor did they repent of their murders and their sorceries, their sexual morality, and their theft. So this is a vice list, right, in the book of Revelation. We're gonna, we're gonna hear about a couple more. Um, but the teaching is simple that they were not making the connection between God judging through suffering and death those who were practicing things like murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. They didn't make the connection. 
And because they didn't make the connection, they continued to do it themselves. They did not repent and turn to God. They did not seek forgiveness for their evil ways. There was what? How did the book of Judges end? There was no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God, and no fear of God means that they continued in their unrighteous ways, even though they saw with their eyes people suffering and people dying. And they do so as you did so before Christ. Because we know what about the human heart? It is deceitfully wicked. And then you take and add on to a heart that is deceitfully wicked in the midst of a corrupt world and you add demonic affliction, you're not going to see anything clearly. There is no hope for the unbeliever apart from Jesus Christ. He is subject to demonic influence. He is subject to the worshiping of idols. And he is subject to continued unrighteousness and rebellion against God. That's Revelation 9. That's the picture that's presented to us by this vision of trumpet five and trumpet six. God using demons throughout the centuries to judge unbelievers through suffering and death. Real time. Real time. Hard chapter, is it not? I mean, you don't, if you came for a light chapter, a light, this was the wrong Sunday. I mean, this is, this should have a right weight to it if we love people. If we love people, this should have a right weight to it. It's hard, it's a hard chapter not to understand, but to, to wrap our minds around. And yet I do believe if we're honest with ourselves, one of the best ways that you can understand human history from Genesis chapter three until the present hour is demonic affliction. Think about Think about the wars and think about the bloodshed and think about the disease and think about the broken marriages. Think about all the evil that we see at such a level. And you say, well, if demonic influence is involved, then it makes so much more sense. But then what do we do with that? I mean, it's one thing to to say, oh, I, to walk out of here, and I pray you do so. I have a, a really clear understanding of, of Revelation 9. It was really confusing with all this imagery. I mean, you had locusts and, and you know, stingers and people, but now it makes sense. I'm, I'm thankful for that, but we would be falling woefully short if we just stopped there, would we not? All right, then I want you to listen with all your might. What is our response to this? Last point. What are we supposed to do with this? We must remember that the book of Revelation is written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It's written to Christians, but I told you, and I think the scriptures teach us, trumpets five, six, and seven, these three woes are not for us. They're for unbelievers. Well, then why is it in the book here? Why are Christians being told about these woes? Are we, can we, are we supposed to just sit back and go, oh, fantastic, no suffering, no misery, no death as a result of demonic affliction upon me because I'm in Christ. So we should just do nothing. You say, well, no, of course not. That would be foolish. I, I believe there are many ways to respond to this, but I'm going to give you the, the big three as we close, and I want you to listen with all your might. Number one, you've got to know you're in Christ. Number two, you've got to fight to stay in Christ. And number three, you've got to fight smartly for those who are not. You've got to know you're in Christ. You've got to fight to remain in Christ, and you've got to fight well for those who are not. Can we do that and then we'll close? You're not too overwhelmed yet? <laughs> you got visions of locusts in your mind, right? Just, all right. 
I believe a fundamental response to this must be you, listen, you knowing you know Christ. Someone said to me this week, is this going to be a scary chapter? I said, it depends. It depends on where you are. This is simple reasoning, right? Many who profess Christ are not in Christ. Many in churches this morning who say they know Jesus do not know Jesus. And if that's true, if they do not have the verse 4, the seal of God on their foreheads because they're not truly saved, they've not been born again, they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then they're outside of Christ and Revelation 9 is theirs. It's all theirs. All the suffering, all the misery, and the early death leading to eternal judgment belongs to them. It means that they're exposed to demons. They're terrorized. And if that's you, my beloved, if that's you, then today you must repent and be united to Christ. Being outside of Christ is a very dangerous place. If God is judging unbelievers in real time and you have fooled yourself into thinking that you know Christ but you're not united to Christ, then you are one of those unbelievers and the misery of these demons, maybe it has been already. You have to know that you really know Christ. You have to know that you've made a real profession of faith based upon a real understanding of the gospel of grace. You have to know that your sins truly have been forgiven. You have to have fruit, my beloved, in your life that bears that out. Real fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit changing you day by day into the image of Jesus. It means you have a real desire to know his word and submit to his word. It means you have a deep love. Listen to this profound announcement. A deep love for God's people. You want to serve them. You want to know them. You want to minister to them. You want to grow up with them. It means a hatred for sin. You say sin no more and putting it to death. It means loving as Jesus loves, serving as Jesus serves, sacrificing as Jesus sacrifices. Real fruit born out of a really changed heart to know that you really know that Revelation Nine is not yours. Let's not forget Revelation chapter 3 and the church at Laodicea. Remember the church at Laodicea? Jesus said, how I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you are neither, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to what? I'm going to spew you. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's nominal Christianity. All those in Laodicea were subject to Revelation chapter 9. There was a study done last year, a very comprehensive study done by ACS Technologies. 9,500 professing American Christians were asked two simple questions. Number one, do you attend church at least once a month? Number two, do you consider your faith as having a high or utmost significance in your life? If they answered yes to both, they were considered by this survey practicing Christians. If they answered no to one or both, they were considered nominal Christians. Now even though some of you laugh, even though we would say these are miserable parameters, once a month and you think that your faith has the utmost significance in your life, 
We would not say that's a true 2 Corinthians 13 Pauline evaluation of our faith in Jesus Christ. But even so, the results were heartbreaking. Even with a standard that we would see, say is not even biblical. Listen to this. The survey found here in the western United States, 30% of the 9,500 professing Christians were able to identify as practicing Christians. That left 70%. 70%, my beloved, let that, let that number just settle a bit. 70% who profess Christ, who go to church, were unable to say that they have a, faith has a high significance in their lives. 70%. Now, if those numbers are even remotely close, given whatever margin of errors they used, then the majority of those who profess Christ here in the West who believe they have protection from Jesus Christ from the demonic affliction of Revelation 9 are wrong. 70% who say, Christ is my Lord, Christ is my Savior, you preach Revelation 9, has no bearing on me, it has every bearing on them. In other words, they're in great, great danger. I say this in all humility and I ask myself this this week, might that be you? Be really honest with yourself this morning. Might it be you? Are you exposed right now to misery and suffering as a result of judgment through demonic affliction? Might your life hang in the balance this day and God pluck you out of here because you really don't know Christ? It's right, as Paul said, to ask ourselves these questions very seriously, lest we be swept away. If there's any concern, you say, I don't know what to do. Of course you do. Repent this day. Turn from your murderous thoughts and your sorcery and your sexual morality. Turn from it and repent and put your faith in Christ. So the first reflection, I believe, should be, do we know him? Do we know him? Secondly, if you do know Christ and you know you know Christ, then Revelation 9 should should heighten your awareness to these dangers and should cause you to fight hard to remain in Jesus. Right? So if idolatry, which is a problem for Christians as well, If idolatry is an issue for us and we know there's demonic influence behind those idols, that's not just subject to the non-believer, that's subject to you too. So the idols in your life, which oftentimes we play off as, well, that's just a temptation of my flesh, that's the culture. We know from Revelation 9 there's demonic influence behind it. That's why Peter said so clearly in 1 Peter 5, he said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to devour you, if he can. That sobriety is not willfully walking into sin. That watchfulness is guarding your heart from all the temptations that lead to that idol that draw you away from Jesus. Not allowing them to get a foothold. When you flee to an idol, especially when times are difficult, you're fleeing to the arms of darkness. 
you're, you're fleeing into the arms of demons. What a horrible thought. It's not just disobedience to God and something that's displeasing to our Lord. It's you fleeing into the arms of darkness. And they would love nothing more for you to change teams, would they not? How great for you to say, you know what? I'm done with Christ. I'm done with the faith. I'm going this direction. Certainly, I would love for you to dishonor your life in such a way where you would not bring glory to God. We must know that we are in Christ. We must fight to stay in Christ. And I'm going to give you the last one here, I promise. I'll stop. Our hearts must rightly break for those who are spiritually afflicted with demons. And we must fight for them too. We must fight smartly for them. It's this question, how, how do I do this? I mean, I have family, I have friends. I have neighbors that do not know the Lord, which means Revelation 9 is there, suffering, misery, potentially an early death as a result of rebellion against God. What am I supposed to do? We're talking about demons here. How do we fight demons? Well, first we better be praying fervently, certainly much more than we are for the spiritually afflicted in our lives. Pray, pray, and then pray more and do not cease praying for them. I think we also have to be a little more intelligent about the demonic power that's actually out there doing the work that it's doing. That means we gotta stop all the foolish secularism. Everything we talk about and everything that we see is always cause and effect, right? She got COVID because she didn't get a vaccine. He died early because he lived a reckless life. She's filled with anxiety because she had a bad upbringing. And everything's cause and effect. And it's all temporal. We must be aware that even though some of those things may be true, Revelation 9 makes it very clear there are demons at work in the lives of those who do not know Christ. And they're making a mess of those lives. If we're not aware of this, we won't approach it correctly. If we're not cognizant of the demonic judgment that is upon the unsaved, then we will always be thinking in terms of science or false religion to try to help them. And we'll be of no help at all. Many of the unsaved in your life are afflicted with more than just living as sinners in a fallen world. Many of the unsaved in your life this day are afflicted by demons. Horrible thought. It's horrible to even say. And if that's true, then the weapons that we fight with to help them, it has to be better than, than simple science or vain religious platitudes. There's an old adage, and I love it. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. That's just ba a bad idea. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. I would argue you don't bring simple secular solutions or simple religious platitudes to someone who's demonically afflicted. You're not going to get very far. Luke chapter 13, you remember Jesus' teaching in the synagogues? We're told, Luke 13, 11, there was a woman there who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She had a bad back that was demonically caused. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. In other words, her, her physical disability was a result of demonic affliction. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 12, Jesus saw her. He called her over and he said to her, Woman, you need a chiropractor. Woman, you need physical therapy. Woman, you need back surgery. He doesn't say any of those. 
because he knows the problem is not simply physical. He knows it's demonic. He says, woman, listen, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God because he cast out the demon. Matthew chapter 17, when the disciples, remember, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are unable to cast out that, the demon who had afflicted that little boy. You remember this. They tried all their tricks and they couldn't get him out. This is what Jesus said. He rebuked them. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because you have little faith. Little faith. My beloved, simple secular solutions. Take this pill, get that shot, have that surgery, see that therapist. Or worse yet, our simple religious platitudes. Read this passage, say this prayer, go to church. They'll have little effect on the demonic influence of someone in your life who doesn't know Christ and is afflicted by demons. Little effect, if any at all. Now, being aware of this, being aware of the present judgment that is upon the unsaved in our lives and in this world should cause us to realize that we need the full force of heaven to come down into the lives of those who do not know Christ and do a mighty work. We know the problem is the heart. We know the problem is a heart of rebellion and therefore that heart needs to be made new. And you say, oh, now I know what I need to do. If these men see their fellow men dying and yet they refuse to give up their idols, if they see suffering coming and yet they continue in their murder and their sorcery and they truly are children of the devil, then we need someone to come down who overcame the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever practices, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ became a man. You know this. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death on the cross in your place. Not only to set you free, but to destroy the works of who? Of the devil and his demons. To be Christus victor for us. He did this work to set your family members, your friends, your co-workers, all those who are suffering sickness, misery, and the potential early death because of demonic affliction. He did this to set them free too. And that means, and I'm going to close, their only hope is Christ. The only hope for the demonically afflicted is the gospel. That's the power of heaven that comes down into their lives to set them free. So when you look upon your unsaved father who's suffering from cancer or your unsaved coworker who's the picture of health, they exercise, they eat clean, and yet they're always sick. Can't understand it. Why are we always sick? Or maybe that unbelieving friend who died so suddenly, as we always say, out of the blue, and they've never, ever, ever heard the gospel shared from your mouth. They never heard it. They're sick, they're suffering, some are dying. You must know that they have no hope of overcoming that demonic affliction apart from Christ and the gospel of grace. If you remain silent, you leave them ensnared. 
You leave them enslaved. You leave them to death. Under the judgment of God, subject to the misery and potential death of demons. My beloved, the state of the unsaved in your life and around this world is infinitely worse than you could possibly imagine. It's infinitely worse. Take Revelation 9 and try to imagine it, and it's infinitely worse than that. Temporal suffering, physical death now, spiritual death now, eternal lake of fire that awaits them. The good news is, like the angel at the very beginning of our story had the key to the bottomless pit, you also have a key. You have medicine. You have hope for them. Their state is not truly hopeless because Christ died for them. They just need to hear the gospel so they can repent and believe. They need to hear the gospel so they can worship God instead of worshiping demons and idols. They need to hear the gospel so they can repent and believe and walk in righteousness and stop what? Stop their murdering, stop their sorcery, stop their witchcraft. Back to God. So revelation is clear. God is judging unbelievers now. Christ is the only one who destroyed the power of Satan and demons. And therefore, he is their only hope. So the only question for us is this. Have you, are you, will you tell them? Will you tell them about Jesus Christ, the demon destroyer? Will you tell them about the one who paid their penalty so they can be set free from the affliction of Revelation 9? Will you be a faithful messenger? So all those that you know, and my beloved, we live in a place and a time when we are surrounded by those who are afflicted by demons. Will you tell them so they can have eternal life and overcome the affliction that many are experiencing even this hour? Or will you remain silent and leave them under judgment? I want to leave you with that question. I pray it's the, I pray it's the former, that we're going to see how bad it is for them and tell them about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you have helped us take Revelation 9 and bring clarity to it. And I pray that you would take that clarity and move us. That you would rightly cause our hearts to have great compassion upon all those in our lives who do not know Jesus. Show us, Father, the affliction they are under, the misery, the suffering, the early death, and worst of all, the judgment seat that awaits them in the eternal lake of fire that is theirs. Father, we too were like that at one time, then Christ came and redeemed us. We know what it's like to live under affliction of the demonic. And if we have this knowledge and we've been set free, Lord, then make our feet swift to set others free as well. Open our mouths as a church. Let us be bold in proclaiming Jesus Christ, Satan slayer, the only one in whom they have hope. I ask that you would do this, Lord, to bless our mission field, to bring many to a saving grace, to set them free from the demons that afflict them now, And above all else, to bring yourself honor and glory. You are so worthy 
of having so many more saved in Christ. Do that, I pray here, in Christ's name, amen.